Well, we're a bit thin, aren't we, with uh, all of our teens away and all their helpers. So I'm glad you've come in your sort of galactic clusters out there. Um, let me tell you how I'm aiming to relate this to what um, Pete's been speaking about in the Bless series. So the, the essence of this series that we've been doing is to talk about really evangelism. Personal evangelism is, is really the idea. And so the approach I'm taking today is to just go back to what we understand about Jesus because I feel as if uh, the authority with which we speak and the clarity with which we speak about Jesus is really depend on, dependent on how clear we are in our own minds about who Jesus is. And so if we're still a, a bit foggy about who Jesus is, for the here and now, for today, um, I think that probably impedes how well we speak about him. So uh, let me pray once again, and then uh, I'd like you to begin thinking about conversations you've had about Jesus that didn't go perfectly well. So let me pray. Dear Lord our God, uh, we just want uh, your son to be honoured today and your word to be honoured today, and we do want um, great clarity in our hearts about who Christ is and great commitment in our hearts to who Christ is. Uh, we want to be truly your servants today ourselves and faithful spokespersons for you. So, Lord, when we're interacting with our neighbours, we really want to um, be speaking in a way that they can understand and in a way that they find compelling as well. Help us this morning to move a step closer to that uh, through the power of your Son. Amen. So it's been interesting uh, how Pete's been challenge, challenging us to think about our five neighbours. I kind of like that format, format for thinking about who's kind of living around you. And then, of course, we have our circles for interacting with people out in other places. And maybe you can think of something that you do in your week that's your best place for interacting with other people outside the church who you think, oh, I could imagine conversations coming up, spiritual conversations there. It might just be your workplace and your work team. That might be your best place to uh, present Christ. Um, for people like me, who are a bit inside the bubble for work, we have to have other outlets. So really for me, I find I mix with the most regular people at my table tennis club, and it might be uh, sporting clubs, for some of you, or other kind of social things. And I wonder if you, when you think back, you can think of conversations that you've had um, Maybe, maybe some that went well, or maybe some that took an unexpected turn when you were talking about Jesus. Uh, the one that was coming to my mind, uh, Naomi was there as well, although we were um, probably barely married, I think. We, had, uh, we were living in a, a church house up in Brisbane, a, a house that the church owned, because I'd started working on staff with this particular church. And the house next door was also kind of somehow related to the church. And there was an Iranian student staying there at that house. And as many people have found uh, when they've been encounter encountering people from Iran, he was very curious about who Jesus was. So, of course, the majority of Iranians are Muslim, but they have a unique kind of perspective of the world. They have a, a knowledge of their own history, even as an empire, right? That you won't find an Iranian, I don't think, I haven't met any, who weren't aware that the Persian Empire was in their past and that they had been once dominant in uh, their region of the world. And they know that they are not, well, put it this way, my Iranian friend at table tennis, when I asked whether he was um, Egyptian, um, 
he really wanted to make it very clear to me that uh, Iranians and Arabs are two different sets of people. <laughs> he, he was quite emphatic about that. And so there's a very uh, strong sense of personal identity, national identity, I should say. And therefore, there's a little bit of an independence of mind about the legacy of Islam. And there's a willingness to, maybe even a hunger in some cases, to learn about Jesus and who he is. But that meant that this student, as uh, a Muslim by background, really wanted to understand what we were saying about the relationship of Jesus as son to the father. So he was, from his background, asking deep doctrinal questions. And I think at the time, I don't know what Naomi remembers, but I remember really having my theology of essentially the Trinity, relation of son to the father, pushed to the maximum limit by the depth of the questions that this guy was asking. So we really can't predict the way some of these conversations are going to go when we finally pluck up the courage to talk about Jesus with someone who's not already a churchy person. And maybe you've had a conversation that sort of went in, kind of left or right when, uh, in a way that you couldn't quite anticipate. Now, when I went through and did my <coughs> postgrad studies up in Queensland, someone said along the way, I don't know who, but it stuck in my head, you haven't really understood your thesis, your big master's or doctoral thesis, until you can explain it in three minutes. And essentially, you could sort of say, you, can't, you haven't understood it until you can put it in a sentence. Now, that's quite a challenge because when you do that kind of study, you've, you delve into something really deeply and you just sort of study every corner of the topic. And for a while, things just get more and more complicated and you think you're going to drown in detail. You think you're going to drown in complexity. Uh, eventually, as you push on and push on and kind of battle with that complexity, eventually things begin to clarify. And so with a, you know, a study topic, a big study topic, you didn't really understand it till you could put it in a sentence or two. Maybe something that adds a level of challenge to that for us, if we're thinking about putting the simplicity of the gospel and who Jesus is in a sentence or two, is that it very much matters who we're speaking to. So we're going to use two passages today to try and understand more about Christ. And one of the things we notice is the New Testament passage, the Luke passage, very much assumes an audience that is very well grounded in the story of Israel. So all the backstory of Israel comes in, and we're going to visit that backstory in terms of Isaiah. We have more of the challenge sometimes of being like Paul in Acts chapter 17, speaking to an, a Gentile audience with no background in the Jewish story. We can't easily just say, well, if you want to understand Jesus, think about King David, and, and you know I'll talk about that and develop the picture of uh, what the righteous king looks like. So if the person doesn't know Old Testament stories and has no background in King David, it's no real help. So we'll have to keep that proviso in mind. But what I'd like to do is hopefully help us all to think a bit more about Jesus and kind of how surprising he is in some ways by visiting a New Testament text where he presents himself in terms of an Old Testament text. So the New Testament text is Luke 4. And... Uh, we've had that read to us by Les, so thanks for that, Les. So the passage of Scripture that Jesus is quoting in the synagogue is the passage from Isaiah 61. So what I'd like to do is take us to Isaiah 61 and explain that passage a little bit. And really, I'll just have to read it for you because it looks like microfish when it's up on the screen. And talk about 
why did Jesus use that passage? Why was that so suitable? So, it reads like this, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They'll rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the raised cities, ruined cities, that have been devastated for generations. We get a little glimpse into the actual historical setting of that passage from uh, the end of that reading, where it's speaking of a time when Judah has been destroyed. So we're talking in the middle of the 500s BC. City of Jerusalem and all its other cities, they've really been uh, levelled and, and badly devastated by the Babylonians. And so the audience of this original text is waiting for God's restoration. When is God going to bring us back? When are we going to see the ruins rebuilt? When will we know that God is with us again? They were very practical people, right? You couldn't easily tell uh, an exile in Babylon or uh, a person waiting back in uh, Israel for the rebuilding of ruined cities that God is with you until they could see visible signs of his favor. Okay, we don't think so much like that, but they were definitely thinking, we don't think God's really on our side until we can look around us and see a thriving society rather than this crushed, ruined, devastated society. And so this passage promises them uh, a, a day of salvation, but it all comes through a particular voice. Now, I went looking online for Shakespeare plays, and I had a particular reason for doing this. I didn't find a suitable one. Uh, I seem to remember at some point in my education looking at a Shakespeare play where all the talking part occupied the main text and out in the left-hand margin were the names of the speakers. The only examples I could find were the names were all in the text, so it didn't work so well. If you had a text like that where, where all the speeches on the right and the speaker's names are on the left, uh, that would be a little bit like the way Isaiah works, except if someone had got that big kind of guillotine thing and cut the left-hand margin off all of the text. So all the way through Isaiah, voices come in and out, but there are no names. You don't know who's speaking. Occasionally it might say, thus says the Lord, something like that, then you know. But many times, including this passage, uh, you've got no speaker identified, you've got to somehow figure it out. Very hard for us. And I think that's maybe why um, some Aussie readers are really kind of scared off from Isaiah. And so we get a few possibilities about who could be doing the speaking here. We know in this passage that the role of the Spirit is vital to what this speaker is going to do. The Spirit of the Lord is on me to announce what I'm going to announce so uh, it was good that it was Pentecost Sunday. These um, church calendar things tend to escape me, but it's very appropriate. Isaiah's very big on the Spirit, and Luke's very big on the Spirit. So we know that this speaker can't announce his message without the help of the Spirit. That's one thing we know from this passage. Uh, secondly, we know that this speaker is anointed to do his work. 
And anointing only applies to a couple of types of roles in the Old Testament, especially kings and then occasionally prophets. In Isaiah itself, there is the surprising label of anointed one on a very unusual character. I don't know if you've noticed this before. So I understand that prior to this chapter, there's only one person who's called my anointed one. Hebrew is Mashiach, right? It's our word for Messiah. There's only one Messiah so labeled in Isaiah before 61. Does anyone know who it is? Yeah, who said that? Wow, that's, I wasn't sure I'd get any answers on that. So in Isaiah chapter 45, the only person called the Lord's anointed is Cyrus, or Koresh, an Iranian, <laughs> incidentally. He was the emperor of the Persian Empire. And so the one person that the Lord, Yahweh, says in Isaiah, this is my right-hand man, this is the guy I've anointed, I've put my hand on him, he's going to do great things, he's a foreign emperor. So all through Isaiah, God's way of working is going to rub people up the wrong way. If you're an Israelite waiting for the redemption of your nation, the last thing you want to know is that God's chosen helper is not a descendant of the line of David, but actually a foreign emperor. That's a bit surprising. <laughs> That's the only person who's been called anointing, anointed before Isaiah 61. Uh, it's not to say that this is talking about Cyrus, but this person is anointed, so do they have a kingly role? Do they have a prophetic role? Uh, this anointing is to proclaim good news. And this is the first of, I think there are kind of like seven um, speaking functions in uh, the original language in this section. So the first is to proclaim good news, and then the binding up and the proclaiming freedom. Uh, and there's a very special word in there for proclaiming freedom that uh, I'll come back to and explain when we talk about Luke. So if you bring up that next slide, Joe, uh, there are four possible speakers that could be involved here. There's a reason why all the cords tie up in a single rope. Um, but one is that we've got this figure introduced early in Isaiah who's the king. Um, so you might rem remember Isaiah chapter 11. It says... Um, the spirit of the Lord will be on this figure and be a spirit of justice and a spirit of administration and kind of a sevenfold spirit. I might try and read that one if I can um, dial it up quickly. <coughs> so I'll just go to Isaiah 11. Okay, so this is the way that one reads. Uh, a shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. This is the new... Uh, English translation, the Net Bible. A shoot will grow out of Jesse's rootstock. A bud will sprout from his roots. The Lord's Spirit will rest on him. A spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom. A spirit that provides the ability to execute plans. A spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. He'll take delight in obeying the Lord. And he'll be just and fair. And uh, really, he'll be a righteous king, seems to be the gist of that passage. So you've got a kingly figure in the first 40 or so chapters, first 39 or so chapters of Isaiah, that could be a possible speaker. Is it a, like a kingly Messiah figure? Um, sometimes it sounds like a prophet. So is it actually a prophet? Uh, Isaiah's the core prophet in the book, and then maybe there's a sort of a follower of Isaiah uh, that comes after him that occupies his shoes, and maybe even two in a chain. So... 
is, it, is it a prophetic speaker saying, I speak this for God? Is it a herald like the one who has the beautiful feet on the mountains in chapter 40? You know, we, we even like the look of the feet on someone who brings good news. Uh, I'm supposing if you're a herald, the grubbiest part of you is the feet. And so if your feet are beautiful, it just means, you know, we love everything about you, even down to the dirty feet. So is this a herald who can say, look, Zion, your Lord is coming back. Your God is coming back. That's the message of the herald. Your God is coming back to you. That's the highway. So some of you have learned about the highway in Isaiah. And we think of the highway as a way for the exiles to come home. But in Isaiah, it's primarily a highway for God to come back to his people. The main problem was not that the people were missing from Jerusalem. The main problem was that God was missing. And they wanted God to come back. And then probably most important of all in the invisible green is this servant of the Lord. I have to explain this a little bit to you once again. Uh, You probably have run into this servant language when you've been reading through Isaiah, and it's complicated. Sometimes, this is particularly from chapter 40 on, you read the servant, sometimes you go, oh, it's Israel. The servant is Israel in Isaiah. And you keep reading and you go, hang on. No, the servant's helping save Israel, so the servant can't be Israel. Uh, Who is this servant? Let me try and boil it down because it's pretty hard. I'm still getting my head around it. I reckon in the chunk of chapter 41 to 48 of Isaiah, the servant is Israel, or Israel is the servant of God, according to the book, what the book's trying to say. The servant is Israel. Israel has been called to be... Servant can be a term of privilege, you know. It's, It's not always just degrading like slave. Servant can mean, you know, my... Uh, my favourite um, assistant and helper, you know, it can be quite a dignified thing. So that chunk, 40 to 48, seems to say, Israel is my servant. But there's an increasing tone of disillusionment with how Israel's doing the job. And by chapter 48, it feels like Israel has failed as the servant. That's the sense of the book, right? By Isaiah 48, you're going, oh, Israel's just done a poor job. And then the servant is reintroduced in chapter 49 and is called Israel again, which is what confused me. But I think here's what's going on. I think those earlier chapters were saying, well, Israel is the servant. I think 49 is saying, now the servant is going to be Israel and it's now an individual. Let me try to give you a sense of that because I'm teaching you the whole theology of Isaiah in, in just 25 minutes, which is not easy. So this is one of the servant songs in Isaiah, and now it sounds like an individual speaking. So there was 40, chapter 42 talked about the servant, now here's another one, and now the servant speaks for himself. Listen to me, you coastlands. Pay attention, you, who live, you people who live far away. The Lord summoned me from birth. He commissioned me when my mother brought me into the world. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. He hid me in the hollow of his hand. He made me like a sharpened arrow. Really, a polished arrow is the word. He hid me in his quiver. He said, you are my servant, Israel, through whom I reveal my splendor. But I thought I've worked in vain. I've expended my energy for absolutely nothing. But the Lord will vindicate me. My God will reward me. So now the Lord says, the one who formed me from birth to be his servant, he did this to restore Jacob to himself so that Israel might be gathered to him That's why I don't think it's Israel anymore, because this servant is working to help Israel. 
I will be honored in the Lord's sight, for my God is my source of my strength. Verse 6, he says, Is it too insignificant a task for you to be my servant to reestablish the tribes of Jacob and restore the remnant of Israel? I'll make you a light to the nations so that you can bring my deliverance to the remote regions of the earth. I might finish with verse 7. This is what the Lord, the protector of Israel, their holy one, says to the one who is despised and rejected by nations, a servant of rulers. Kings will see and rise in respect. Princes will bow down because of the faithful Lord, the holy one of Israel, who has chosen you. So this <coughs> servant, I don't think is, any, is Israel anymore, but stands in the shoes of Israel as servant. Right? So now the servant is an individual, um, not being Israel, but helping Israel, uh, rescuing Israel on behalf of uh, the Lord. And this servant's ministry is not going to be just rescuing Israel, as if that's too small. Uh, this one also will be a light to the nations. So we'll have a ministry that goes beyond just the chosen people, the initially chosen people. So it's an expanded kind of ministry. What changes about the servant as we get nearer to chapter 61? Uh, it turns out, it's just hinted at here that the servant will be despised. Chapter 50 has the servant beginning to suffer, suffer rejection, be cast out. Um, it refers there to the beard being pulled out and, and the hair and that kind of abuse. And then you'll know the passage very well when we get to chapter 53 where we find the servant suffering to the point of death. And being rejected, being despised, being regarded as someone that God had cursed. Nobody wants this guy. This guy's thrown out on the garbage heap. We won't touch him because God obviously doesn't want to touch him. Now this is really precisely the reaction at the crucifixion of Jesus. So if you're in one of those societies where you think people are getting exactly what they deserve and you pass a beggar on the street, someone uh, partly lame or partly blind or something like that, uh, if you're in a society that believes you get exactly what you deserve, you are discouraged from helping that person. Right? It's not in your interest, it's not even in their interest to help that person. Your life's doing well because clearly you've deserved it. <laughs> their life's going badly because clearly they've deserved it. And if you're not going to spoil their karma, you actually can't rescue them. You can't help them. Right? If, if that's how we understand the world to work, you are discouraged from helping that person. They've got to do their time, and then the karma arrangement will bring them back <laughs> when, they, when they're ready. Right? It's the opposite of Christianity, if you think about it. So when the people around the cross at the crucifixion see Jesus up on the cross, most of them are thinking, with a bit of a karma-ish type worldview, they're kind of thinking, well, this makes it clear. I wasn't really sure about Jesus, but now I know. He's rejected by God, so you know, I can cast him off too. right? Because they had that verse and that understanding, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. right? Paul quotes that in Galatians. So if, there, if a guy's been crucified, the Romans might have done it, but God allowed it, and that's God's verdict on that person. That was the understanding of what the crucifixion meant. And so Isaiah 53, kind of anticipating that, uh, says, we thought him cursed by God. We thought him smitten by God, struck. We thought God had attacked him, and so we thought, well, if God thinks that, I, I'm, who am I to think any different? He's a reject. He's a pretender. He's a posturer. And he's been found out. 
That's what Isaiah 53 talks about, and that's the way the crucifixion looked to the people around the cross. Surprisingly, at the end of Isaiah chapter 53, you see this figure well, seemingly going all the way to death. He was given a grave with the rich at his death. You know, it seems to honestly talk about death. And then it seems to somehow talk about his vindication, his restoration, that he'll see his offspring and prolong his days. And so I think the early Christians found no chapter of the Bible a better anticipation of the death and resurrection of Christ than Isaiah 53. And so lots of people think that when you get to Isaiah 61, you've reached the last of these servant passages, that it's the servant speaking once again. Now, the reason why the chords entwine here is that in some ways, all of these different roles seem to start to meld late in Isaiah. And so it might be the servant and more. But this means that when we come to Luke, and we might go to Luke now, Joe. Luke chapter 4, Luke's gospel is going to start flagging these servant passages from Isaiah and lead us to understand that we should look at Jesus in terms of that character especially. So um, in chapter 2, when uh, that old guy, who was the old guy in chapter 2 of Luke? I'll look him up. <laughs> Simeon, that's the dude. Yeah. So I'll go to uh, chapter 2, verse 30. So remember Simeon. Some of you guys can read my mind. It's pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> uh, someone said Simeon. I can't believe it. All right. So remember, uh, Jesus as a baby is uh, being spotted by significant people in chapter 2. And Luke two twenty seven, Simeon, directed by the Spirit, came into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary according to the law... Simeon took him in his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, according to your word, sovereign Lord, permit your servant to depart in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. He's essentially quoting verse 6 from the servant passage that we just read in 49 and seemingly um, 42.6 as well. So Luke is quoting Simeon and going, ah, Simeon's cottoned on. Jesus is that servant character from Isaiah. Uh, you go one chapter forward, and there's a really big, obvious kind of flagging of the same message, because John the Baptist is introduced as, in verse 4 of chapter 3, the voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley will be filled, every mountain and hill will be brought low. And all humanity will see the salvation of God in verse 6. That's the language from Isaiah 40, and that's just introducing that whole servant section. So again, Luke's saying, ah, see, John the Baptist has got it. He knows. He realizes. And when you get to verse 22, Jesus is being baptized by John the Baptist. And it says, The Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my one dear son. In you, I take great delight. That great delight language is from the beginning of the very first servant song in Isaiah 42. And then the sonship conjures up images of the king because in the ancient world, the king was viewed as the son of the, the deity of that nation. So in Psalm 2, when um, it celebrates the coronation of the son, 
It's talking about the, the right of the king, or the, the enjoyment of the king of that privilege of sonship. The New Testament is going to take that and run much further with it, of course. But this verse combines it. So when the Holy Spirit says, or the voice from heaven says, you are my dear son, you're like that anointed king, in you I take great delight. You're like that servant. Combines the two. All right. I've tested your patience enough. Let's get to chapter 4. I'd like to read through this passage and just pick the eyes out of it a little bit and think about why does Jesus pick this text to announce himself? Because this is Jesus waving his own flag. Why is he particularly focusing on this text? So I'll read it in the version that we heard before, which is up there. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So he's very popular at the moment. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It's kind of interesting that it's obvious that Jesus has the right to read in the synagogue. You know, that wouldn't have been just allocated to anyone so he already seems to be a recognised teacher. He's got some... Credibility, he's got some established authority, and when he comes to the synagogue, he's one of those uh, people that you would obviously say, oh, okay, you, you do the talk today. Um, there, there's something about him that he's established his uh, reputation already. Now, you know that they didn't read Bibles with flip-open pages like we have. They would have had a synagogue-style scroll. And so Jesus would have been hoping that when he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, he didn't go, have to go right from the start. <laughs> Because 61 chapters in, like you can imagine, there'd be some rolling. But he gets to Isaiah 61 and quotes these words, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, which is from Isaiah 58, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Uh, as Les pointed out in conversation with me last night, it's quite true that he doesn't read the following phrase, the, the day of vengeance, in a way that says something about what Jesus is meaning to do right in the present. He's not really meaning to be the agent of vengeance of God at the present, but proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. Uh, uh, just go on to the next one, Joe. Now, I just imagine this moment. Like, things are pretty quiet in here, right? So it would have been similar in the synagogue, I think there's an air of expectancy. I think people are wondering, what's Jesus going to say about this? Who's he? Well, they're wondering about his own personal ambitions. They're wondering about whether Messiah might show up on the scene. They're waiting for deliverance. They're waiting for rescue from the Romans. They're waiting for that light to break in that they've been reading about in their Bibles. So they know that their Bibles say there's going to be a day when the light pierces the darkness. And there's... Something in the air at this time. There were so many other messianic movements around the time of Jesus, you know, um, people having, leading uprisings and then getting crushed by the Romans, right? So there was something in the air. So I already imagine that there's an air of expectancy and Luke leaves us hanging a little bit because he says the eye, he, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and then the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him as if there's a dramatic pause as if he waits to say something, you know. He's got their attention. They're wondering, so what's it going to be? What's he going to say? He's going to say something about himself. He's going to say something about 
uh, you know, is there an uprising on, or you know, is Messiah coming, or what, you know? And so, after this dramatic pause, it says, "This is being fulfilled as you listen today." You can't just kind of say that every Sunday, every Saturday at the synagogue, right? It's not something that yeah, we heard this last Saturday. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. This is that day. This is the day when the Lord's promised rescue arrives. So they've only been waiting for it for, you know, five, six, seven hundred years, certainly since the destruction of Jerusalem, a good 600 years before. And then Jesus says, this is that day. This is that day. Think what he's claiming. He's both claiming that this is that special day of rescue and he's also claiming, I am that special agent of God's rescue. I'm the speaker of Isaiah 61. And so if the best way to understand that is that kind of, well, some people say like the servant Messiah, then he's claiming to be that by speaking those words and then saying they were just fulfilled. What, what I just said just happened or is happening. This is that moment. So in brackets, I'm that guy that you've been waiting for. It's huge. It's a really huge claim. So it doesn't surprise me that people who've written apologetic books, you know, for who, about who is Jesus. Um, was it C.S. Lewis who said Jesus has to be Lord, liar, or lunatic? Was that C.S. Lewis? I think so. Um, Jesus proves himself here to be a person either who is Messiah or who has a Messiah complex. Now, I know that's not an open question for you, but sometimes we've got to learn to think like the person outside um, church world for whom it is uh, potentially still an open question. So sometimes we can define our doctrine quite well for ourselves about who Jesus is, but we're not great at explaining, explaining it in terms that regular people understand or in being ready for the questions that regular people are going to want to ask. And so regular people might have in their mind, if they were to see something like this, you know, Messiah or just Messiah complex? <laughs> Messiah, Messiah complex. Now, the reaction from the people so far has been really good, but characteristically, Jesus tends to punch holes in good reactions to him in the Gospels. So when people love him, he tends to try and turn it around and make people hate him. <laughs> and I think part of that is that he knows that their love can't survive reality. It, it's, a, it's an infatuation, and it's not realistic. So some people think that there's a kind of a, a bit of a put-down in verse 22 when they say, isn't this Joseph's son? Like, we know this guy's family, you know. Some people think, well, that means that they're not thinking very much of him. No, I think at the moment they're impressed. I think they're surprised. Wow, who'd have known we could, you know, this guy would come from our town. Well, he, he's an up-and-comer, you know, up-and-coming Messiah. <laughs> so he's on the way up. This guy's star is rising, and, and he comes from our place, you know. Awesome. I think that might be the mood. Uh, Jesus is going to punch a hole in that. He'll say, surely, maybe one day, uh, you'll quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. The nearest thing I can find to that is what they say to him on the cross in Luke, when they say, if you're the saviour, save yourself, come down from the cross. So one day you're going to say words that aren't quite so um, acclaiming. You know, one day you'll be saying, physician, heal yourself, saviour, save yourself. And you'll tell me, do in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Now, Jesus is really going to punch a hole in his popularity with what he says next. So after he says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown, 
He goes on to talk briefly about Elijah and Elisha, and this is our last bit of reading. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. I don't know if you've got your Bible map in your head, but in your Bible map in your head, if it's there, Sidon's up on the coast where Lebanon is now. And what race of people are they in um, Elijah's day? They're basically Canaanites which is the same race of people that Israel came in and you know, did their best to exterminate. They were the idolaters. They were the baddies. So the person that Elijah's gone to stay with is basically a Canaanite woman. The people who are listening, they all know this. And there were many in, in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Now look at the reaction. When the people in the synagogue, they were furious when they heard this and they got up, drove him out of the town and tried to throw him off the hill. That's quite a dramatic change in reaction. So what was it about citing Elijah and Elisha that completely turned their impression of Jesus on its head? I read one of those great breakthrough articles that helped me understand this. Now, uh, in our kind of egghead industry, we've got to read lots of kind of scholarly articles and things, and lots of them are dry and boring and difficult. And every now and again, you read one that just opens your eyes. And it was simple. This guy basically said, you've just got to read this against the Isaiah passage. And the idea is, here's this guy claiming to be the agent of God's salvation and to bring in this great day when the sun rises for Israel. You know, Isaiah 60 says, Arise, shine, your light has come, and the glory of the Lord's risen upon you. So Israel, God's people, the chosen ones, the people of the covenant, the people of the law, they've been waiting for this day when the darkness, dis darkness is dispelled and the light dawns. Now, they're practical people. When they look around them, they know that if they're being ruled by the Romans, it's still darkness. That's what they think, right? They're practical people doesn't matter that it's been 500 years. They're thinking that prophetic promise that God will return to you, it hasn't happened yet, but we're still waiting. We're still waiting. One day the light's going to shine. So Jesus just got up, or literally just sat down and said, the light is dawning. And now what's he saying? The light will end up being mostly for the Gentiles. <laughs> right? He's allowing them to understand him as a prophet in the mold of Elijah and Elisha. And he just has said, the best work of these prophets was done for outsiders. Now, the first set of outsiders for the townspeople here is that the best work is going to be done outside my hometown. Another gospel says he didn't do many miracles for them. Most of the miracles, most of the amazing stuff happens outside of Nazareth. But not only that, Jesus is saying, a good deal of the work that I'm going to do will end up being outside the chosen people, outside Israel. It'll be for others. It'll be for the world. And so the people are thinking, well, whose side are you on? How can you be Israel's great redeemer when the main work you're going to do is benefit all the, all the other people? Canaanites and Syrians, the kind of people who attacked us in the past, the, the people who've been worshipping idols for millennia past, we've been the ones faithfully holding the flame for worship of one God, and your work is going to be to help them? Your best work is going to be to benefit them? How can that be right? What kind of a Messiah are you? What kind of a saviour are you? That's not what we ordered. That's not what we're waiting for. And so Jesus is completely busting down their expectations. He's not going to meet 
um, their pre preconceived notion of what a rescuer, what a saviour, what a messiah is meant to be. It was critical, really, that Luke keeps raising these passages that rate, relate. And, of course, he's raising it here because Jesus has used it. Uh, but Luke continues to take the opportunity to raise passages from Isaiah as he presents the gospel. So Luke wants us to understand Jesus as this servant character. Apart from helping Gentiles, one of the most difficult things to accept about Jesus being Messiah was that he could be defeated. So the impression that Jews leading up to Jesus' time had about what Messiah would be would be that he'd be a victor. He'd, he'd prevail. He'd do well. He'd defeat the enemy. He'd succeed. And so they didn't have room in their image of Messiah for a Messiah who would suffer and die and be rejected. That didn't fit the box. But gospel writers like Luke said, it was in your scripture. You know about the servant of Isaiah and you know if you follow his career that he does, despite being the light of God, he suffers and he dies and then he prevails in chapter 61. That's where he prevails. So only if your Messiah takes Isaiah's servant into account can you account for a suffering Messiah, right? That's why Isaiah is so crucial to forming the image of Messiah that the gospel writers will take up and say, oh, see, Jesus, Messiah, Jesus, servant. You can't understand who Jesus is without understanding that the servant of God is rejected and suffers, despised and dies before he prevails. Now, a challenge for us as we kind of leave this passage is that Luke can still call on the whole backstory of Israel to make sense of Jesus and the scriptures of Israel, right? This is a kind of a, a Jewish-infused audience that gospel writers like Luke are talking to. So we can call on the backstory and they understand what it means and they know the scriptures and they, they get the significance, they feel it in the gut, what's being said. But people we speak to are by and large going to lack that backstory. And even if they know something about it, it's a long way in the past. There's a range of things that can, can kind of help us with that. But uh, as something to hang our hats, in, our hats on, I just want to bring out one word from this passage uh, in Luke's gospel and in Isaiah that has more meaning than I really realised. And it's the word uh, about release for the prisoners. So can you go back to the passage that shows the Isaiah quote, please, Joe? Um, yeah, the, the one in... Yeah, okay, no, camp there, that's fine. Um, there's freedom for the captives in the middle of... Late in verse 1 there, the word freedom, and the New Testament's going to use words like release. Uh, there's a lot riding behind that word. It turns out this is a word that was used in the ancient world uh, in a couple of ways. In the Old Testament, it's used in... Uh, Leviticus 25 for the Jubilee. And the Jubilee was this idea that periodically all debts would be forgiven and if you'd become enslaved, uh, you would be set free. If you were deeply in debt, your debts would be forgiven and you got a fresh start. It was a complete socioeconomic reset every 50 years. That was the idea of the Jubilee law. Uh, people aren't sure whether it was ever implemented in Israel. Um, you actually see one example in Jeremiah 34 where it's actually being done. 
But the idea is a complete reset. And apparently this, uh, the word behind it is also seen in the Babylonian world where a king might come to the throne and kind of say, okay, I'm declaring an amnesty. If you're in prison for debt, if you're in prison for uh, political opposition, um, open the gates of the prison, you can come out, it's a, it's a fresh start. A goodwill gesture as I come to the throne. You could declare this, you'd use this word, a deror, like an amnesty. So an amnesty is the word I want to uh, take as a good English rendering. So when you come to the New Testament, uh, the word that's used there in Luke is the word that's actually typical for forgiveness. Um, but it's more loaded than we have realized. So when Jesus comes, one thing that he does is declares a kind of an amnesty. So he speaks for the Father. He's the king's representative. He comes and announces the king's uh, new policy, new regime, the kingdom of God. Right? God, God is coming back to rule, not just Israel, to rule the whole world. And he's declaring this amnesty. And what the amnesty really means for the listener is... Uh, your accounts with God can be completely cleared. You know, this, this is an utter fresh start. Israel carried into the New Testament a burden of guilt for all her failure. And the Gentiles, the ones that uh, the Nazareth crowd were so furious with, in a sense carry the burden of guilt of millennia of idolatry, of worshipping anything and everything but the true God, worshipping sun and moon, worshipping stars and uh, getting their future out of animal guts and all the kinds of things that pagans did, sacrificing children at worst. Right? So if Israel carries into the New Testament the guilt of having broken the covenant and having failed God, the Gentiles carry into the New Testament the guilt of millennia of alienation from the true God, not recognizing the creator in the creation, worshipping animals and plants and sun and moon and stars, worshipping anything really except the true God. And so both of these groups actually need this amnesty from God, need a, a wiping free, wiping clean of debt for the sake of a fresh start. I don't know whether, you know, your five neighbours, I don't know whether they're going to have a pressing sense of guilt or not. A message of release from guilt is going to help the person who feels guilty. The person who doesn't feel guilty is not looking for it. But I just wonder whether more broadly than a sense of guilt is a sense of spiritual hunger. I just wonder if there are people out there uh, still hungry to know God, hungry for access to God. I think we saw that in this Iranian student. I think the reason he was so interested in Jesus was because he was hungry for God, really, hung hungry for the spiritual life of God. And we see in Jesus this uh, representation of God. The, the servant has this unique role. He represents God in a way that nobody else does. And so I think uh, that hunger won't be satisfied until we come to God through his son and through his servant. So sometimes I think we're like the, the crowd in John chapter 6 and other people out there like the crowd in John chapter 6. What happens in there is uh, Jesus talks about how you won't be satisfied unless, you know, you eat my flesh and drink my blood. You know, the only thing that's true food is my flesh and my blood. And even his own disciples go, man, that's stomach turning. You know, what, what does that mean? How can, who can accept this kind of saying? And remember, in the, you know, just like here in Nazareth, the crowd starts to disperse and Jesus ends up saying to the 12 disciples, so are you guys going as well? You know, he's taken a massive crowd and a huge popularity and he's turned it on, his head, on its head in a few minutes. <laughs> so are you all going to leave? You guys going to leave as well? 
And you can see the disciples scratching their head a little bit, like they're not entirely sure what Jesus meant by the flesh and blood part, and they're a bit uncomfortable. But Peter says, where else are we going to go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. And, and you know, we, we've known and believed that you are the Holy One of God. Brackets, we don't understand everything you say. Some of it's a bit worrying and a bit disturbing or certainly unfamiliar. Uh, still working through that flesh and blood part. But I haven't found true life anywhere else. I haven't found true satisfaction anywhere else. I haven't seen the Holy One of God anywhere else. And so we stay. We're staying. We're your disciples for life. So sometimes we're a little bit in that boat, like the disciples, uh, scratching our heads a little, a bit unsure of who Jesus is going to be because he's never going to be predictable. Uh, but what we can say to people is that there's no satisfaction anywhere else. So someone called evangelism, one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. And it's a little bit like that with us. Uh, in a way, what we're saying is, look, I haven't fully worked out Jesus, and I haven't fully worked out my Bible, including Isaiah, but I know that I've found true satisfaction nowhere else. And I know that when, I, when you're looking for God, if you go to Jesus, you'll find satisfaction for that. So let's pray that God can help us to... Uh, both make sense of Jesus in our own heads and when that conversation comes up whose direction we'll never be able to predict that we'll be able to speak clearly on behalf of God in testifying to his son and his servant. So I might pray about that. Uh, Lord, it says somewhere else, I think in James or somewhere, who is adequate for these things? We're pretty poor representatives sometimes. We don't make good sense about Jesus. We have these conversations that go off in funny directions we can't control and sometimes we wonder if we've made anything clear at all. Lord, take these flawed people, these, these beggars who've found food, help us to tell other beggars where to find the true spiritual food, the bread of life. Help us to point people to Jesus. Uh, surprise us with what you can do through unlikely people like us. Amen.